Good evening. I'm looking to see what lies ahead. Tell me something. Are you the jealous type? I certainly am. Why are we making even this podcast? For me, it's funny how like stories you watched back when you were a kid just stick around. Like, I don't know when I started learning the myth of the American cowboy and this idea of freedom that like had a hat and a gun. But like I learned it early and it sticks in my head in all sorts of weird ways. And it's fun to go back and try and unpack like what scenes, what movies like were doing that to my head before I was aware of how it was happening. I love to revisit things that I have vague sort of uh, childhood memories of. I think um, watching things as an adult that you have memories of from a childhood perspective, um, you, you get new things out of it. And often you do kind of discover something about yourself um, because these things were so uh, impactful in shaping who you become as an adult down the line or it introducing you to concepts of, of the world. All right, I've got this idea for a bit, and maybe it's stupid, but can we try and guess some of each other's lines? Barbara Manatee, 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 she's the one for me, one for me, one for me. You two were so on the same page, and I have no idea what's happening. Mowage is what brings us together today. Oh man, I should have said crunchings and munchings, because honestly, crunchings and munchings lives in my head even deeper. Hello. And welcome to Shows That Haunt Us, a podcast in which three millennial scholars from different disciplines revisit scenes from our childhood that we just can't seem to get out of our heads. I'm one of your hosts, Zoe Copeman, and I'm an art historian who's a little bit too much into the paranormal. I'm Avery Lures. I'm an environmental anthropologist. I'm Aslan Smith, they, them, and I think a lot about fiction, writing, narrative structure, and queer community. So to get us started today, it's our pilot, and I just wanted to think about not only the shows, but the phrases that haunt us. So what are some lines from your guys' childhood that haunt you today? There's like the obvious ones, things like, with great power come great responsibility. That one doesn't just haunt us. That one is like in the canon, right? That's like part of every American. <laughs> I was thinking of, y'all ready for this? Da, 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 da. Exactly. <laughs> Is that in a show or is that in a in song? It's a song in a movie. Is it Space Jam? Yes. Now there's a movie. Space Jam does get an A plus and I can't believe I totally don't remember that part. But like that was my jam for a couple of years. I have another one. So this is one that's kind of weird that it's stuck in my head. But it's there's no such thing as a good bomb. I don't have anything for that. Yeah. Did you all watch Captain Planet when you were kids? I'm aware of Captain Planet, but I did not watch it. We only had um, public television channels. We watched movies rarely in my house. I never had TV. So my Captain Planet is like, I can vaguely picture the captain, like blue and green, I think. And then there's like kids and there's rings and like Captain Planet or something like that. But yeah, that's about all the Captain Planet I have. As a conservationist and environmentalist coming from that background, I, I know a little bit about Captain Planet just because it was really popular in the public that was aimed towards children in particular that focused on environmentalism. But I have not actually seen a full episode of it. And, and I think my impression of it is it's like the Power Rangers, but if it was funded by government money. <laughs> I know that there's a, a diverse group 
who are trying to work together to save the planet and they each have powers and they might be from different countries. But I think that they they all come together to create the man Captain Planet, which I yes. think uh, is an interesting concept. Yes. So just for some framework there, the way that the show works is that each of these children from around the world get a ring and it's supposed to represent an element of the earth. And when they join together, their powers combined, as we will learn in the intro song, is what creates Captain Planet. And so it's all about community building and about how all of our continents have to come together to solve the world's problems, while also putting it on the shoulders of children, which is very interesting as a show for children that we could also unpack a little bit. But there's no such thing as a good bomb. It comes from the very end of this episode that I kid you not, in my memory bank, this episode was about these planeteers going back in time to defeat Hitler. I mean, I think every childhood group of heroes has to defeat Hitler at least once, right? Like that's like in the contracts for all 90s media or 2000s media. You guys, you didn't defeat Hitler as a child? Was that not part of your... <laughs> so yeah, in preparation for, you know, telling you all about this one episode, which is called A Good Bomb is Hard to Find. I rewatched it. My memory was kind of off because I remembered specifically that the planeteers went back in time to defeat Hitler because of pollution, <laughs> not because of the Holocaust. It's not entirely inaccurate, but I did not remember the bomb at all. I remembered the quote, but not the bomb. So would you guys mind if I just described a scene that I think just really encapsulates what is going on? Yeah, tell us the story. Okay, so for some background, what's going on here is that you have Dr. Blight. She is one of the main villains of the TV shows. She reoccurs quite often. A woman scientist. Mm. Yes, she's a woman scientist. She's incredibly hot. She is like in her 30s or 40s, complete hothead, and she hates the earth. And she meets her future self, and then they go back in time to 1940s Germany. And they're just having a conversation over who can we sell our bombs to? And then they go, you know what? World War II leaders, they have a lot of money and they want bombs. So fast forward to the actual scene I want to describe for you all is the penultimate moment where Dr. Blight's negotiating with Hitler over a bomb. And their negotiations go sour, and the planeteers, they show up just in time, actually, to save Dr. Blight, because Hitler had doubled-crossed her. <laughs> and, and so she decides she is going to triple-cross Hitler and to detonate the bomb. Of course... Captain Planet is there, and he decides to launch the bomb into space. But he can't do it at first because he has this face-to-face -face off with Hitler. And it's this really awkward moment where, <laughs> I kid you not, Captain Planet, he's looking at Hitler and like, the toxicity is killing me. Not just nuclear weapons are toxic, people can be toxic too. And they both look so constipated. The entire time they're like having this face off where you can see just this pent up rage in Hitler oh, like no. he's trying to release <laughs> himself and can't. 
And then, of course, Captain Planet sweating all over the place. And Captain Planet, he gets over it. He's able to launch the bomb into space. But it was just this moment where it just felt very strange to me, this face-off between Captain Planet and Hitler, where, once again, nobody tried to defeat Hitler. It was all about the bomb and how there's no such thing as a good bomb. Wait, so how do they get around the toxicity of Hitler? Do they wash him off? (laughs) I have so many questions. (laughs) And I'll add just before turning it over to get your general thoughts on that scene, that Hitler, the way he looks is so strange. His mustache is not, you know, his iconic caterpillar mustache. Instead, he has a Fu Manchu. And I I don't understand why. So I have a question on this. You said that Captain Planet was being physically affected by the presence of the bomb or the existence of the bomb itself. Is he, does he like physically suffer when, when things happen to the earth? Yeah, that is something that I didn't remember. And in rewatching this episode really like sunk in for me again, is that Captain Planet can exist if there's no good in the world. So Captain Planet can die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I um is the bomb is it meant to be like a nuclear bomb? Yes. So that's another thing that I'd love Avery to get more of your thoughts on is that so what ends up happening is after the scene, Dr. Blight, she's a genius, and the implication is that she invented the nuclear bomb and she's bringing it to the past. Oppenheimer who? <laughs> and so she when they're jumping through the portal to go back to the future present, she leaves her journal there and it gets picked up by a soldier and he's an American. Oh, okay. So the the implication is that because she was back there, she left the information. We wouldn't have discovered nuclear weapons unless Dr. Blight had left her journal. Yeah, I have thoughts on the the nuclear aspect of it because if he's saying that if Captain Planet is melting because of the existence of a nuclear bomb, I mean, that's... Oh, he was melting because of Hitler. Oh, oh, okay. So just Hitler himself was so toxic as a person that he was melting the planet. That's... That gets into the morals and ethics, Aslan. Yeah. <laughs> What happens in between the I am melting, I can't, and the now I can? What is the plot reason to make that possible? Can I guess? Yes, please. <laughs> can I guess that it's like one last display of love and courage? The kids are like, you can do it, Captain Planet. And then he's healed enough that he has just enough strength to hurl a nuclear bomb into through the atmosphere into outer space. Oh my God, Avery, you should write children's television. That's exactly what happens. <laughs> So here's something that I was wondering from Aslan's perspective is that in my memory bank, I hardly remembered anything from this episode. And in re-watching it, there's no context given. In other episodes in Captain Planet, there's some ideas as to why people are put into situations. But here it just feels like there's no rhyme or reason. And I was almost wondering if this might be because it's for children, they picked a topic that you can't give context to and some like executive was like, let's take that out. So I was wondering, like, I mean, Aslan, you haven't watched the episode, but from a writing studies perspective. This is kind of an answer to that. And maybe kind of I'm still just processing that question and <laughs> st- struggling off in other directions. Um, I don't know if anyone's read the books by Elena Ferrante. 
Uh, the first one's called My Brilliant Friend, and then there's a, a series of them. These amazing Italian stories about a friendship between two young women. But one of the things that in the second or third novel, this author comments is that fiction is very weird uh, in that it has to arrange into, or it is often in the business of arranging into a meaningful arc, life experiences that don't make a lot of sense. The complete mess of your life does not usually have a nice plot arc. And like, if we, if there's a mysterious person outside your house on Monday, that doesn't mean that we've learned that they're your long last dad by fall. Like usually like, <laughs> there's just a person and then they never come back. Um, so that there's this attempt to make something narratively compelling and narratively compelling has a lot of, I think, cultural assumptions about what it means. In this, I'm really thinking about how narratives function to pick up fears of the time. Um, we might not want to get big into who Hitler is, but that like Hitler and Nazism is both a useful horror of the time and then also an opportunity for us to show our heroism. That again and again, this, this narrative gets made where we get to be the good guys against the foil of this horrible person. And that maybe exists in the 90s to extent that we don't need to talk about who Hitler is because for the purposes of this show, it's not super important who he is. It is important that he is like a recognizable villain to whom a lot of meaning coheres by just him being him. Which brings me back to the mustache. And I'm curious about what was going on by animators and by people who were reviewing this for like its suitability to TV and whatever. Why decide to not do the most iconic image of him, but yet to use the name, but yet to not explain him. And I think there's this kind of, and I'm not saying that Hitler was a scapegoat. We should probably cut that part out anyway. But that like <laughs> people get to, people are picked to kind of inhabit the role of evil. Yeah, so that is another thing, is that in the entire show, he is the only historical villain. All other villains are made up. And so I wonder if also, to go back to what Aslan was saying, I wonder if the choice to put a different mustache on him was to conflate him with other foreign leaders, other villains. It's like a composite villain. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's what I was thinking, yeah. Another thing that came up for Avery, I'd like your perspective on, is that the beginning of the show, it opens up usually with a scene of pollution. This time it opens up with this beautiful landscape of this jungle. I think it's supposed to be on a Japanese island. And they're talking about how ugly it is because it's untouched by man, the polluters, <laughs> and they want to pollute the landscape. And this is when the future people come in and are like, wait, 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 this is actually already polluted with bombs. There is so much to unpack there. The very first thing that comes to mind is there's this idea, there is a place that is nature, there is a place that is not. So in Western civilization in particular, we have a very clear binary in terms of people and society and development are not part of nature. And, and nature is this sort of untouched wilderness, a jungle, lots of animals, lots of plants um, that that is pristine in some way, which now we can all understand that that's a very uh, colonizer way of approaching nature in terms of like understanding that people have actually been part of nature for 
millions of years. It's a false binary, essentially. Um, but environmentalism in the 90s and conservation in the 90s was very much still focused on this preservationist ideal where we wanted to maintain and preserve a pristine and untouched nature. Um, again, now we, we might say we're living in the Anthropocene. We might say that we're, we know that there's no part of nature that hasn't been affected in some part by human presence. Um, whether or not that's still nature, you know, we, we don't have time to get into all of that, but it is very interesting to me that there's this understanding that there is a, a good nature and then there is a bad nature that has been polluted. Um, and that pollution is inherently um, something where it's like visually clear that it's been polluted and that it's destructive and that it's dangerous to people where we know that there's plenty of pollution that may not actually pose a harm to people, but is more harmful for the ecosystem at large. So it is, it's very, a very clear message in terms of there is, there is a pristine, clean, untouched nature, and we need to save it for the health of the planet. Um, and minefields don't do that, which <laughs> I will say, yes, minefields are pretty ecologically damaging. <laughs> um, so that makes sense. But it is interesting um, that, that that is sort of the message that there's, you know, an image of pollution or there's an image of like clear environmental destruction in a very specific way represented in this show and that nature and the environment are represented in a very specific way. I, I think it's also worth noting, though, that it's it's a group of people that end up saving nature right so it's it's quote unquote nature um these kids that come together and summon captain planet this idea that it is a little radical in the sense that it's saying like we need people to prevent the harm that p other people are doing so then you kind of have this there are good people and there are bad people for the environment it is an emphasis on we all have to come together and collaborate to to achieve a successful conservation or environmental care. Yeah, there's definitely collaboration is central to the show. And it even brings the audience members and like puts agency on you as a kid to do what's right for the environment. Very end of the episode, they tell you how you can do good change in your community. Go dig up some mines. <laughs> Maybe not that, but <laughs> it's usually like you can dispose is... of your bombs properly. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, not bombs, usually water bottles. But this episode was different because instead of talking about how you can recycle properly, they talked about gun violence in inner city schools and how you should <sighs> gain more knowledge about that. That's very interesting especially given the the plot of the episode i don't know aslan do you have any thoughts on that yeah i was struck a little bit ago there's the bad people and there's the good people and the creation of this dichotomy and the bad people require the good people to do something and rise up uh, but one of the things that's i think interesting in that dynamic is that there's no talk of anything systemic there's not any talk about if your food system distributes food in single-use packaging there is factory farming and then the results of factory farming are distributed and single-use plastics. And that system, independent of the goodness or the badness of the people doing it, is going to have a result. And one of the things that's fascinating to me in this whole conversation that I keep coming back to is that figure of Dr. Blight, where there has to be someone who just hates the earth, who's looking at the earth and be like, oh, man, I hate that. I wish there was more pollution in the world. 
because <laughs> as we're sitting here wondering like you know like oh god like why is it 1992 or three or whatever it is and like as a little kid how come my you know my parents are handing over to me a world that like we are understanding in more and more ways is like so impacted by our behavior that what we're looking for is a villain and we're looking for a villain because we don't see a system that might create it we don't see that like oh maybe you know like a fossil fuel industry maybe colonialism as a system of of power and domination maybe single use food packaging and not like not individual uses of straws but the way that like food is distributed to grocery stores from grocery stores it makes for what we would call a good narrative right a narrative where the villain at the end of the day is the system that we all participate in doesn't have the good punch fight at the end where at the end of the day the villain is Hitler or, or Dr. Blight, the villain is this bomb that you can throw away where there is this badness that we can like throw out from ourselves and this goodness that can be held up by the kid being, we believe in you, Captain Planet. <laughs> um, and instead, there's just these systems that we are complicit in that are broken and breaking and ongoing. And it's interesting to me how the narrative structure of kind of a hero and a fight and a villain recreates uh, this looking for an individual to blame a monster instead of thinking about a system. Yeah, I really love that. I I, th I was thinking about this as well. And we see that across the board with children's shows. They have this very simple narrative of there's a bad guy and you have to defeat it. But I think it also speaks to the style of these shows. I mean, a lot of kids shows in particular, this is sort of an what, what I think are called edutainment cartoons where they're like meant to teach kids lessons or teach kids about something obviously the theme of captain planet is environmentalism but these tropes of like um teaching a lesson through a story that's very ancient you know could go back to parables but it is interesting that like how we construct the villain speaks a lot up to to a certain time and so i think that when it comes to these environmental villains it is interesting that they they don't have a villain, at least in this episode, I, we'd have to watch more, where it's a little bit more nuanced. Or it's like maybe a, an executive who's like greedy and just wants profit and wants to cut down a forest. I can imagine that that is an episode somewhere probably. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. The 90s form of environmentalism, that preservationist critique, we didn't really have a villain yet. I mean, there were definitely some people in the field, in literature, who were saying, we do need to change our system. 90s, the 90s was a very capitalistic time, very neoliberal, very like consume, 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 um, especially in the United States. Uh, and so it, it is interesting that there's this, the, the lesson is that it places the agency on the individual, that it's the individual's job to, to care for the environment um, and that you will save the environment by say recycling properly. Um, that's... <laughs> a very, very, very simplified and very problematic in many ways message. You mentioned uh, a villain that has more more nuance to it. Um, I think that's an interesting question. And then alongside that, I think we can zoom out. There's an amazing writer named Ted Chang who did an interview back in 2020, I think. We can put a link in the description, but talks about how, this is from memory, fantasy narratives are designed to be conservative where if a fantasy narrative works like this, there is a state of the world, usually an ancient evil erupts to disturb that state, 
And then we go on a quest to destroy the ancient evil and reestablish the world as it was. That is a fundamentally conservative narrative where the idea was that the beginning state was the good one and that our fight is to get back to it. And I'm wondering how much Captain Planet is recreating this, that like, sure, like we sometimes could do a little bit of pollution, but the basic state of the world is good and we need to collaborate and work together to get back to that from the interruption of Dr. Blight, from the interruption of this bad person. But it's still doing this fundamentally conservative narrative. Cheng proposes at another narrative, right? If instead it was, there is a state of the world, something new emerges, and the world will never be the same, that wouldn't be a fundamentally conservative nature anymore because the idea wouldn't be that we're trying to get back to what was, which is understood to be good in a stable way. And instead, we're thinking that our current moment was a constructed contingent possibility <laughs> and that we, there's a no constructed contingent possibility that might be better in larger ways than any one person getting thrown into outer space or not. Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct because... And I didn't say this, but this is another part of the episode where they, the planeteers meet along the way, this young girl who recently actually hit one of the mines in the minefield. And so she is on crutches. She's missing half of her leg and she saves them from a mine. She's like, this is a badass person. And when they go back in time, she comes with them and she sees one of the soldiers representing Japan and she has a conversation with him and the planeteers ask her what she said. She told the soldier about the minefield to clean the minefield. And so when they come back to the future, she has her leg again because she never <laughs> stepped on the mine. The minefield never happened. I feel like minefields were a big topic of discussion in the 90s. It's also fascinating that um, there's this idea that a little girl could come up to a single soldier and be like, clean up the minefield. And they'd be like, oh, okay. <laughs> And they do it. Yeah. I think it would be really funny. Like if we were going to do a modern remake of Captain Planet um, and, and and kind of adjust it to today's environmental narrative, I would love to do like a spoof where it's like, hey, kids, here's how to build your own pipe bomb. <laughs> <laughs> Radical resistance, you know. <laughs> how to blow up a pipeline. Yeah. That's a book, actually. <laughs> How to boycott a company effectively till they change their practices. <laughs> if I went back into to World War II, I would probably try to like stop the Exxon Valdez oil disaster from happening. Do you know what I mean? Like once you add time travel into the equation, how did they open a, a, a time port? It's, you said it's a portal. It's not like a time machine, right? I don't know. <laughs> this is part of I, I'm going to be honest, I had to make myself a gin and tonic to get through this 20-minute episode. I don't know what happened. Dr. Blight has a future self who comes to her in the present, and then they're they're trying to steal plutonium, and then something goes wrong, so they have to jump through the time portal. So they might have just ended up in Germany by mistake. There's like zero context. It's just people are being thrown into situations in the show. <laughs> And I I kind of wanted to circle back before we finish to the representation of the villain, this very tangible visual representation of a villain that you can latch onto and say, that's bad, that is the model I will not follow. And I'm wondering, in contrast, if you all have seen Fern Gully. Oh, definitely. I mean, that scene with the skateboarding on the leaf, that is the coolest thing to be recorded ever. <laughs> that is a very 90s moment. 
It is. That movie is around the same time period as this episode, and they're both about preserving nature. But the way that the villains are depicted are completely different. In Fern Gully, if I remember correctly, the villain is like a bulldozer, right? Like, it's not really clear. No. The villain is a polluted mass. It's like an amorphous creature that comes up from the earth to go back to Aslan's description of how fantasy narratives work. The bulldozer knocks down this ancient tree that had been housing it. And it's just this amorphous creature that is just pollution. And it's voiced by Tim Curry. So it's fantastic. Well, that's one way to mark a villain is if Tim Curry is the voice. Are they fairies? Yes. Yeah. Fairies that live in a forest. What's interesting is they had to invent a humanoid race that you are supposed to feel sorry for. I think the main characters in Ferngully are all white. So they had to create like a pretty white lady who's a fairy. Then you can care about the environment. Then you can care about like the broader, oh, her home is being destroyed. It's the same environmental message that there is a pristine earth, um, pristine habitat or an untouched area that that is being destroyed um, that we need to save. But it's a very different way of going about it. I think there's also something interesting in that like you were talking about how for kids, we have these like the, the bad one and the good one. And that's certainly something that adults do. In, in making <clears throat> media for kids. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about the different ways that people pick it up though. Cause like, I knew a lot of kids who really liked Darth Vader. I loved Scar the Lion. That was <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Jeremy Irons. <laughs> Jack Halberstam has written about this in a, in a book called The Queer Art of Failure, but talking about how like to be a kid is to have your life controlled by these all-powerful folks who like are giving you arbitrary rules and watching and whose motivations you don't really understand. And so you like stories of getting away with it. You like stories of rebellion, not universalizing that into everyone. I think the way that a story can be designed for a kid to pick up is often not the way the kid is in fact going to pick it up. And then also depending on like, well, which kid, where are we talking about? Who you are in relation to this story is going to have a big impact too. When we look at media design for children, we're seeing often, well, we're seeing two things. We're seeing what corporations think they can make money from by advertising to children. And we're seeing what adults think children should like. And neither of those are the children who are not free to kind of make sense of the world independently of all this input. They're like inside all of this input making sense, but are also not totally abandoned to just be pushed along. (laughs) Like read a book to a four-year-old or a five-year-old and sometimes they'll be like, wait, what's happening? And you'll tell them and they'll be like, oh, okay, like I think that. And sometimes you'll be like, well, this is the good one. And they'll be like, no, I don't like that one. That one's mean. (laughs) And like, you're not going to sway them off it. Uh, Which I think is kind of a delightful for me point of optimism where like in the face of this, there's like these constraints and these designs being like, think of it this way, design it this way. And then there's also, and I don't mean to idealize children, but there's also the way that different people pick up this input and play it in different ways. I wish I had a good anecdote for that right do, now. Do but... you think any kids watched this episode of Captain Planet and were like, yeah, Hitler? <laughs> no, but definitely Dr. Blight. I remember yeah. kind of having a crush on her. I want to know what her PhD is in. Where where does she get her funding? I don't know, but she is a badass. I mean, she knows how to fight. She knows how to like solve every kind of equation. She builds AI robots. Her cohort are just AI robots that help her. 
I think it's also interesting in terms of representation. She is a white woman with like a banging body. A hot white lady. 30s, 40s, yeah. Playing into this like white feminist mindset of the 1990s. They make her a villain, but then throughout the series, even though she's all about like destroying nature and she thinks nature is ugly and she wants it to actually be ugly, they attempt to convert her always. And they always save her. Like she gets in all kinds of issues with other people and the planeteers always save her. I, I think that you see that quite a bit in children's stuff, especially they, they are always challenged to forgive the villain to some extent. They're always given a chance to to grow as a person or to be convinced otherwise. Dr. Blight has this arc where she's allowed the chance to forgive. And maybe because she's been shown forgiveness or care by the planeteers, despite everything she's done, then she starts to feel like, oh, maybe maybe I should be better. I'm I'm very interested to know how they represent her as hating nature like if there's a backstory was she like bitten by a snake as a child or like what what was it that she was like nature sucks my memory is not that good so that is Those an gin archives question <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> it's also interesting right that, that you don't remember that piece uh anyone else watch roadrunner yes. or like what it was it was it called roadrunner yes. and coyotes chasing like you never wonder like what's the capitalist system besides all of these acne products that <laughs> coyotes already like i never wondered where they came from like that that was just like right not relevant to the story um i think there's something interesting that narratives do where some things need to be explained and some things don't <laughs> like there's a genre of story where you could just say a time portal and that's okay <laughs> but something else is going to need to be explained for instance in this the kids have to have agency. So Captain Planet has to be like, I can't until the kid is like, I believe in you. And then Captain Planet is like, aha, I can now. There's goodness in the world. <laughs> so like, I think narratives do an interesting job of steering. What can we assume? And what do we have to be led towards? Do the kids themselves have any powers? Or is is there only power that they can summon Captain Planet? Well, I would, I would put pressure on that, but that their only supernatural power is summoning Captain Planet, but they have like really unique personalities when you get more into the show. I mean, they follow stereotypical lines, obviously, but they, you know, they work together and they each have a unique skill set that disregarding the rings, them working together and just collaborating without Captain Planet is also important to the show. I mean, they also have like air bending, right? And water bending and fire bending. Like that's what the rings give them. Oh wait, yeah, they do. Yeah, the rings, the rings give them powers. Oh, okay. So like... they do have some powers. Yeah. Powers over the elements. Okay, there's there's something else to to unpack, which is that most of our relationship to nature as as like Western society is based on this idea of control. Um, where we have to control nature in some way or contain it or manage it. it. It can't just be left alone. And so it's it's so now they have control over the elements. They have control over summoning this sort of earth spirit. Uh, it, it's this this kind of, in a way, a fantasy of control, it, control over the earth in in a but in a benevolent way, uh, which is fascinating, I think. Probably going farther than any writer of Captain Planet ever intended us to do here, but uh, <laughs> but it is interesting. 
Yeah. So with that, just because we can't keep talking about Captain Planet forever, as a wrap-up question, as a child watching this episode, what lesson would you get from it? <laughs> Water ring is coolest. <laughs> I haven't watched it, so it's difficult, but I can imagine I was very much um, a nature kid, so... I feel like um, I wouldn't even get a lesson out of it. I'd be like, yeah, save the earth. Like I would just be like, of course. There's a, there's a scholar who was writing in like the 1950s, so 40 years before this, named Aimé Césaire, who I think is from Martinique, who's a, who's a poet and a scholar. And one of his central or one of his claims about colonialism is that what Hitler did is practice colonialism in Europe that the tools he he used are not surprising they they are actually tools that like were established european protocols of control and power and what was what was mind blowing to europe is that he practiced them in europe um and i think there's something interesting in particularly like at with colonialism i think it's like one of the ghosts that uh white powerful nations in northern europe and like in america and canada are like most resistant to admitting um, or most like worried about like, you know, like, ooh, like that's in our closet. What are we going to do with that? That Hitler becomes such an important scapegoat, not just because he gets to be evil. And again, he is evil, but because we want to completely other everything he did from any kind of practices that are wider or longer standing including all of like the genocidal tendencies of colonialism, including the eugenics, which eugenics uh, was a big American thing before World War II. Um, there's like the I, there's the nude posture photo Ivy League scandal people can read about. And I think the professor there is named Sheldon. But like we like America was all into eugenics uh, until Hitler. And then we're like, ooh, like that was a Hitler thing. Like Hitler was awful for doing that. We sure do hate him. There's a line in... Uh, and I'll end here, but there's a line in the Laramie Project where uh, a woman of color is being interviewed and is is talking about how all the white people talking about this hate crime in Laramie, Wyoming, they're people trying to distance themselves from a crime. Like, if you listen to their narrative, what they're doing is distancing themselves from a crime. And I'm thinking about how, like, how these how the these childhood narratives our narratives that are trying to situate like, yeah, crime happened, but we are distancing ourselves from it. We didn't do that. We had nothing to do with that. We we take it out of the context, the broader social, cultural and economic context in which these crimes occurred, if that makes sense. So it, it is it is it is this like oversimplified way of of approaching things. And and it's it's it doesn't happen in a vacuum. Um but it is this idea that like we need a very clear villain. We need somebody to blame. We as a society do this all the time, not just in like kids shows or in fiction or anything like that, that, that we always have to have sort of a very clear, there is a bad guy and they have to be stopped. It is something to to think about in the way that like if we are presenting this stuff to children as as a model of how to become a person of a way of teaching our cultural values and lessons um what are we kind of priming them to think or believe or how to approach problems if we're consistently doing this oversimplification or this really fictionalized version of like how things go wrong in in life 
but it would also be very difficult. I mean, just from a fiction perspective or just a pr producing TV perspective, it would be very difficult to do like a takedown of colonial uh, problems, like colonial impacts on environments um, in a kid's show. You know, it, it gets very complicated <laughs> as far as like dealing with those problems go. So I think it's complicated. I think it's probably more possible than it might look. Um, but I think one of the way things in the way is the narrative structure. I'm thinking now about the narrative structure of powers itself. Like interesting that at the core of Captain Planet, we've got these five kids who are given power over some part of the natural world, except for the heart kid. I'm not exactly sure what they have power over, but like everyone else, like you get to control something. And like that, like I can now do this is the fantasy of control that Avery, you were talking about a little bit ago. And I'm thinking about that through all like, right, our superhero stories of today and the Marvel verse and everything else, like how a, we we like mainstream white American media likes promoting the kid with the power narrative, which is a fundamentally a control power fantasy of I get to this. And I'm wondering, what about a narrative that didn't take that structure? What if it wasn't you are special and therefore you get to do this and save the day. What if it isn't Luke plucked from Tatooine to wield a lightsaber? It's not Harry <laughs> Potter plucked from like their boring life to go do magic. But instead of this fantasy, there is a story that emphasizes, for instance, the collaboration maybe or something like that, which sounds boring, but I also think is a narrative problem and is in fact not boring. I'm thinking here, we'll put another scholar in the comments. Uh, there's someone who's written about how the narratives we tell children about having to grow out of your mother's love, right? That like the home is safe, but you don't want to be a mama's boy, especially if you are being raised mask. You have to grow up and be tough and learn that the world's not like that. It's about competition. Um, and there's a scholar who's written some beautiful stuff about like, well, that's just because that's the narrative you value. Like you want to teach that narrative that you can't just be immersed in the home and in interdependent relationships you have to break out and go compete because you want to construct a story that's a competition and in fact pay attention to any child or any family or any person actually what you'll see is that we are interdependent that like any one of us alone like can't do very much at all that like all of these are social stories and therefore it's not that the story of interdependence and a kind of engagement that isn't power over isn't possible. It's that we have constructed and we find compelling narrative arcs that are based upon a control fantasy instead of narrative arcs that are based upon a fundamental idea of collaboration. And there are other ones. Jack Halberstam, who I mentioned earlier, thinks that animation and Pixar in particular, when it starts animating crowds like it can in The Bug's Life, like something interesting happens because the technology creates an ability to animate a, a crowd as this living character. And therefore you need a story that centers a crowd as a living character. And that this in kind of a, a fundamental way starts leading towards an offshoot of narrative kind, where instead of a single hero who has power over, you might have a collective who has group engagement with. It also plays um, directly into this uh, very American individualism. There's that rugged individualism, the American dream, the pull yourself up by your bootstraps uh, thing that we we really tend to promote in American culture. 
in particular. So I think that both what you're saying and this, like, we love an individual, we love a hero, we love like, you know, a, a do it yourself, fix it yourself sort of lesson. As we we look at to these bigger problems of the world, you're right. It is we need a collective action. We need a community action. We need to emphasize interconnectedness, interdependence. Um, well, kids, we're nearing the end of the episode. And the real moral here is you are not special. You can't do it. You have no power and immersed in the systems that are larger than you. So enjoy. <laughs> I do think there is power in collectivism, right? There is power, there's agency and power in in understanding that things are bigger than you and, and admitting that you maybe yourself aren't unique or special does not mean that you do not have power. And so that's, you know, I know you were being tongue in cheek, obviously, but we should <laughs> emphasize, but it is a fun thought exercise. Again, if we wanted to think about what a, if we, as the three of us, were going to like rewrite a modern Captain Planet, um, it would be very interesting to consider, you know, how, how would we want like a post 2020 uh, collectivist um, like <laughs> approach to Captain Planet? What do superheroes look like when we when we work as a community, right? That's a, it's an interesting question. And I love that you brought up Bugs Life. Um, I know we've talked about this off, off camera, but Ants, Bugs Life, these ideas of like working as a community um, to accomplish bigger paradigmatic change. Um, it, is, it is possible in a narrative structure. So it, it would be very interesting to see um, how we might go about that in, in like a kid's show. <laughs> Yeah, if I was going to uh, do my moral a little bit more seriously, it might still have the same front part, but it would end with a like, but look forward to working with you. Because <laughs> like, let's think about the systems we're included and how we should tear many of them down. Um, I wonder if a fun way to end uh, is, uh, I was thinking about like saying our own morals for how this would end. Although actually, I, I don't really like that because that's directive, that's single. What if we did questions? Like, Coming out of this, coming out of this clip, this conversation, what questions are in your heads about whatever? I think my question at the end is about a narrative arc and thinking about how I've I've bought into it. I've come to love narrative arcs that really value the individual with power and the fantasy of that power and control, and looking for media and narrative arcs that are enjoying, relishing, taking delight in, exploring a story that has less to do with an individual with power and more to do with the collectivity. I, I think I will play off of that. And my question would be, um, what might it look like to work in alternative ideas of nature and what nature is and how we can work with it or protect it in media? So Again, in media, we often, when, when we look at the way that conservation is, or environmentalism is presented, it, again, we tend to have a very clear villain, we tend to have a very clear solution, and we also have a very clear idea of nature as being something pristine and separate from human activity. And my question would be, what would a different construction of nature look like in a television show or a movie? Or how could we introduce these different ideas of environmentalism focused on interdependence and uh, a relationality with the environment? How can we present that in, in media in ways that are, that are motivating and interesting to the general public? 
Yeah, and I'll just spin off of that with, in terms of media representation, and particularly in environmentalism, you have this strange dichotomy between, that centers around primitivism, where in terms of representation, the primitive person is the not white person, but the white person is the person who's allowed to enjoy nature and is fully like in the subjecthood, pushing somebody who's not white into objecthood. And I'm wondering, you know, with these TV shows with Captain Planet, there is representation, there is diversity, but it, because of the reliance on stereotypes, it becomes tokenism. And how can we be more thoughtful in children's TV shows about diversity and that representation, not to reify that primitivism? My real closing question is, uh, what should we watch now? Like if this podcast actually has anyone listened to it ever, <laughs> like in the comments, uh, like give us shows, music, movies that are doing interesting things. Uh, in response to this because there's so much to read and write and I'm always looking for what I don't see. What are the shows that haunt you? Spoken like a true (laughs) ghost to a guy. right. I think that's it. I think we're done. That's a wrap. Yeah. All right. That felt good.